It is the first day of November, and so today, someone will die. Even under the brightest sun, the frigid autumn sea is all the colors of the night, dark blue and black and brown. I watch the ever-changing patterns in the sand as it's pummeled by countless hooves. They run the horses on the beach, a pale road between the black water and the chalk cliffs. It is never safe, but it's never so dangerous as today, race day. This time of year, I live and breathe the beach. My cheeks feel raw with the wind throwing sand against them. My thighs sting from the friction of the saddle. My arms ache from holding up 2,000 pounds of horse. I have forgotten what it is like to be warm and what a full night's sleep feels like and what my name sounds like spoken instead of shouted across yards of sand. I am so, so alive. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf for mine Your shelf Hello, and welcome to your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standall, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. I'm Jacob Collins, Library Technician at the Longview Public Library. I'm Austin Brigden, Circulation Specialist at the Longview Public Library. And today, we're throwing tables. Chairs? Chairs? Whatever's available. In Rare <laughs> artifacts? <laughs> we're here in the Longview room. We're not going to throw the rare artifacts. No one's career will be harmed by the opinions that they express on this podcast. Youth Services Civil War. Do you have your <laughs> union representative here with you? I do, in fact. <laughs> wow. Oh, boy. Wow. <laughs> it's going to be interesting. Today we're talking about my close personal friend, Maggie Stiefvater. And her works. No, um, I'm not close personal friends with Maggie Steve Otter. That was a lie. But I have met her on a number of occasions. And several years ago, she came to our library, the Longview Public Library, and did a creative workshop with teens and then a author discussion. And in between those things, we went out to dinner and she's got a lot of like food restrictions. Maybe, maybe less now because she actually knows kind of what's going on with her so she just had some milk and the rest of us had dinner and then afterwards she read my tarot cards which was i think the biggest fangirl thrill of my life so i've got steak or what do they say what you have skin i've got skin in the game wow yeah tell us how you first encountered her work okay probably at the library actually so i have here a copy of shiver which was her the first book in her Wolves of Mercy Falls series. And this came out, you know, in, in the Twilight era. So let me see what year this was. 2009? Actually, I think I read this in library school. And I'll tell you what attracted me to this book initially. This was the first Maggie Steve Otter book that I read. Mm -hmm. It's printed in blue font. It is? It is. The second book, blue is kind of, it's a little subtle. 
The second book is has like a green color scheme and it's printed in green. And the third one is printed in red. For some reason, I was like, you got me on the design. I'm going to read the book. So wow. that was the first. And I read the trilogy. And then several years after the trilogy was done, she wrote like another one, like authors do. Mm-hmm. And I never read that one. So I liked the series. I reread Shiver, and so I'll talk about it more later. But it wasn't like to blow my mind or anything. But a few years later, I was working at the Timberland Library, and the district um, youth collection person had sent out like to our youth services list, like a list of arcs she had to loan out that she'd gotten at a conference. And on them, that list was the Raven Boys. And I was like, me, but a lot of other people are like, me, me. So we had like a little list, like a holds list, like a loaner list. Oh. Because we would just send it to the different branches for people to read. And other ones, too. But when it was my turn to read that book, I read it. I just remember it so well. I was up camping on the Klamour River in the woods. And there we used to camp in the same kind of spot all the time. And there was this big rock in the middle of the river that I would, like, wade out to and then sit on the rock and read my books in the sun. And I read The Raven Boys like that. And I just loved it. I thought, this book has all of the stuff I like in a book. It's got, like, beautiful writing. It's got interesting characters and these kind of weird and complex relationships. It's got this romance thing that's happening, magic. And it's got this, like, promise of, like, more to be revealed in future books. And so that was that. That's probably one of my favorite books like of all time, my favorite series of books, for sure. And I remember I wrote when I was working at the Timberland Library when I was at the Winlock branch. There we had like a Tumblr back in the day. And the different teen librarians at the different branches would take turns writing stuff for the Tumblr. And I'd written a review of the Raven Boys. And I talked about in that review about how at the time, and this was before the series was over, I think the first two or three had been out then, how it didn't, wasn't, it's not like, like Harry Potter in any way, really. But the experience of reading it reminded me of what it felt like reading Harry Potter and like waiting for the next book to come out and trying to like predict what was going to happen and just feeling like you knew the characters in those books. I've read some of Maggie's other books too, but for me, nothing quite hits like those four. Um, like she wrote All the Crooked Saints. She's written a, like a spinoff trilogy about Ronan Lynch that I haven't finished yet. She's like a couple collections of stories and the Scorpio Races. Probably the Scorpio Races is her other, I think, strongest book. And then her first series, which I never read, which is like about fairies yeah and i hear that she's her next work is um being published for adults so that's my maggie steve otter story i've dressed as blue and chainsaw for halloween and she retweeted those back when i was on twitter anyways i just love it over to you guys nobody here has as much maggie steve otter experience as becky but but becky has introduced me to her writing we listening to it. We um, were driving down to Southern Oregon to Grant's Pass, and we listened to the audiobook of the Raven Boys, which Becky had recommended before. Then I recommended in the library rec- uh, staff picks and things like that, and I really, really liked it. 
And then for this pod, and that was it. That was the extent of my experience with her work besides listening to Becky. <laughs> but for this time, then I decided to pick up the Scorpio races. I didn't have time to, like usual, read as much stuff as I hoped to. And so I'm about halfway through the Scorpio races, but it's really interesting having having done the one book, the really famous book, and then this other book, which is quite different, and it's not part of a series, stands on its own. I'll say that the Scorpio races is a Prince Honor winner. Uh-huh. So, like, her, it's her most awarded book. She's got pretty awarded, though, I mean, in, yeah. in general. But yes, yeah. And that's all I'll say for now until we get deeper into this. Okay, and... Yeah, I was introduced to Maggie's work through Becky, who has recommended me quite a few books over the course of my career here at the <laughs> library. And I've liked all of them, except <gasps> no! for the Raven Boys. That can't be true. A twist. Yeah. I think you're doing it wrong. Did you read the wrong book? <laughs> I read the right book. Oh, it was actually this different book about Raven. Oh, that's no, why. I got confused with Six of Crows. <laughs> Well, what what that other happens. books? What other books did you read too? That's all. That Becky's recommended, or in general. So. Oh, are you talking about Maggie Steve Otter books she's recommended? No, I'm or, talking about books oh, in general. Like, oh, I see. This is the first stinker. Yes. I feel like a little bit there, perhaps, is that other times I've recommended books, I've been like, "You, Jacob, will like this book," and this time it was like, "I, Becky, love this book, and you should read it." And so, like the. That's a little different, I feel like, you know? So you want to keep your record intact is what you're saying? (laughs) Well, it's like I think there's a difference between just being like, I love this book, you should read it, and being like, I know what you like, here's something else that you'll like, you know? Sometimes it's hard to tell someone to read a book that you love because you're like, what if they don't like it? Can we still be friends? Yes, you can. (laughs) I will say that I, for 10 years led in like a forever young adult style book club where we read teen books and the pandemic killed that book club but i hope for a revival we read the whole series together and i think doing that also kind of like made it more exciting so you as a group you read it and waited for the books to come Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. i can see that being exciting yeah where do we where do we want to begin where do we want to make the first cut I feel like I've already been delicate cut. surgery. Let's start with Shiver. So Shiver was her first best-selling book. It was came chronologically of the three books we're going to talk about. It came out first. Jacob loves chronology. I do. Yes, in fact. <laughs> so okay, like I said, Shiver came out at the height of paranormal romance time, and in this book, it takes place in a I assume fictional small town called Mercy Falls, Minnesota. At one point, they're making a quiche, and they put mayonnaise in it. I hate it. <laughs> and I was like, ew, who would do that? And I was like, mm, Minnesotans. She she nailed it then, probably. I don't know. <laughs> what was I saying? Oh, it's very – I started to listen to the audiobook, and then I just stop and read it because it, it's, like, slower when you're listening to it, you know? And I was like, I don't have time for this. And it's so emo, I It really, I guess I'd forgotten probably all of the books in that genre particularly, but also, you know, I feel like YA that I've been reading in the last few years is not as emo as probably what was out and very popular in like 2010. There was a part in The Raven Boys where 
the main character blue cuts up like a bunch of her clothes and like that's her fashion style and that very much reminds me of like what things were like in late middle school early high school <laughs> so the t- there's two main characters and there's two perspectives and they're close first person perspectives and it goes back and forth between them grace is the girl and sam is the boy and she's like 16 he's like 17 but also he's a wolf and every chapter says like chapter 27 then it says who's narrating it and then it says what temperature it is Hmm. does it get slowly colder well it's going into the winter yeah so it's very like winter is coming and it opens grace is young she's like 10 years old out on her swing they live kind of like out in the country and she gets attacked by wolves but is saved by you find out you know say it's sam he is able to for some reason you find out later even though normally this is impossible like turn back into a human and save her and he's only like he's like a kid too he's like 11 so that's what happens it's like in the background that's how the book starts and then it's like several years later and she's in school and there's been another wolf attack for a classmate and he's been killed and it's like she's really worried about these wolves that she sees in her backyard so all these years later she's like obsessed with one of them he's got yellow eyes wait 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 pause she considers him her wolf my wolf are these werewolves or like just wolves are they seasonal wolves they're like seasonal they're humans like sometimes they're, they're werewolves but they're not werewolves how on the moon cycle right they're not like monsters they're like literally turn into wolves and they do it seasonally like snowbirds yeah okay it starts that way anyways as it gets colder then they turn into wolves but as the years pass they lose the ability to become human again and she loves the wolf she loves the wolf as a wolf she loves the wolf as a wolf and that's it's very at the beginning i was like oh my gosh i you know i don't remember how much it was like this She's like, at one point before he turns into a human and they actually meet as humans together, he lets her, like, pet him. And she puts her fingers in his ruff. Uh-huh. And it's very... In his in his what? <laughs> in, his, in his ruff. The ruff is like the fur around the neck of a dog. <laughs> wow. Wow. She brings up the ruff a number of times in the way the lady who reads the audiobook says it. It's very, like... His rough. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, kind of makes you uncomfortable. But in two thousand, but in two thousand nine, this was just a normal book. <laughs> <laughs> that was just the zeitgeist then. Yes. Yeah. Teenage girls in in impossible romantic situations. Yeah, with monsters with and animals. Monsters, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, these men in the town decide that they need to like protect everyone from this pack of wolves because it attacked and killed this boy in her school who was a jerk and everyone hated him until he died and so she's really concerned that her wolf was going to be shot and so she throws a big fit runs out to the woods where the hunters are out to like find and protect him he does get shot but then it turns him into a human like the shock does and so she takes him home her parents are the most neglectful parents you'll ever read about in a teen novel and that's they they show up to be like absent they're like hey uh we're going out to a party bye you know and it turns out part of like being the wolf is like they can heal really fast and that's how i guess they become wolves because they get bitten and then they heal from that and become wolves oh so the tension of the book is that 
he was supposed to be turning into a human in the spring and then they have the summer as human and then in the fall when it gets cold they become wolves again Mm -hmm. but it's september when he gets shot and so he'd never turn into a human all summer so he thinks he is probably the last time he'll be human and so this is like the only time they have together and then he'll be a wolf again and they'll be separated by being different species so does he bite her they're not She's already been bit. If you remember, at the very beginning, when she was only 10 years old, she was attacked and bitten by the wolves, but she didn't turn. Why? Because she's immune. That's not why. Interestingly enough, her terrible parents accidentally left her sick in a car. Uh-huh. And I don't, I have not back to the ending yet, but they figure it out. The reason why she didn't turn into a wolf, although she does still have some wolf characteristics, like she can communicate, they find out with him the way the wolves can, and she can like smell stuff. Uh-huh. Not as good as a wolf, but better than a person. Uh-huh. It has something to do with like how high her body temperature got before she first transformed. And she makes it kind of more, more science fiction-y than magic-y. Mm. Although, you know, there's like kind of, I guess, an element of both. It turns out there is a cure. It's not a cure. They have to like get sick enough that they have a high enough fever that it like kills whatever makes them a wolf. So it's like a virus. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. But they figure that out because I think she had gotten sick as a kid and then her dad had left her like sleeping locked in the car uh-huh. in, on a hot day where it's like she would have died, but she'd happened to have been like recently bit by a wolf. Wow. Yeah. And so the the cure carries like a risk though, right? Because mm-hmm. like you could either get cured or, or you just, you could die. Ivermectin. <laughs> Let's not get political here. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's very like she's very sensible. You know, she's like had to raise herself basically. And he's a wolf poet, you know. He he like leaves her little like Rilke poems, you know, like in her in her coat pocket for her to find later. And she's like, I don't really get it, but I think he likes me. But they've been in love, you know, since he was a wolf and she was a person. So you read this first from the library and you liked it yeah and uh but you don't think it's her strong you think she's developed oh for sure yeah no i definitely like when i read her later later book on a sentence level the writing is much better and i think like more unique too it's interesting when she's talked about so like this was a really successful series and it put her on the bestseller list which makes it a lot easier to write whatever you want to write after that. But she said, you know, she's had fans from the series. Like a lot of them. It sold millions of copies. But the, until she wrote The Raven Boys, she never had a fandom. And she's talked about how, like, the experience of those things is very, very different. Mm. People in a fandom, they got opinions. Mm. And people who are fans, they just like it. Yeah. So that's Shiver. I think I might finish it, you know, because I'm like pretty close to the end and I want to really remember what happened. But yeah, there is like a kind of a showdown at the end because he's got this pack, you know, that they've been taking care of each other. And then kind of he has this realization through the um, like a little way past the middle of the book that he didn't become a wolf by accident. 
which he just always thought, I think. He'd been bitten on purpose when he was just a boy. Wow. He feels some betrayal there. I will never read that book. (laughs) I was like, I know Jacob would hate this book. It's like, it's 100% romance. It's like 80% of the book is them being like, I love you. And I remember (laughs) you said once you didn't think that people said that to each other in real life. Right? (laughs) I mean, I know that people say I love you, but it's like, there's a difference between. So there's a difference. Yeah. So I think there's a difference between saying I love you regularly in a relationship between you mean it. And building your entire relationship on trying to top the other person with how <laughs> sappy you can be. Uh, but there's just a lot of gazing. There's this point where he takes her to a chocolate or like a candy store in Duluth and it's cold. And he's like, close your eyes and just like give yourself over to like your wolf smell power. And she <laughs> smells it. She's never smelled so much good stuff. <laughs> Wow. It's very high emotional teen romance for sure. An of its moment, you think? Very yeah. of its moment. The- I mean, people are still reading it. People are still reading Twilight and sure. and Vampire Diaries and all of those too. And I hear like emo stuff is coming back. So. Oh, it is. 100%. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we might see a resurgence in these kinds of like monster romances. Oh. But Yeah. You know, when you feel it, like, my parents don't understand me. I wish I could join the wolves in the backyard. He's so hot in his yellow eyes. Look at his ruff. I want to touch his ruff. <laughs> <laughs> so what was published What next? Was it the one I? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Scorpio Races is so next. Scorpio Races, I had been excited to read. Becky had mentioned it, and I was curious about it, especially since it seems like Steve Fodder has done a lot of, like, living in series and this is a standalone mm-hmm. and won awards and stuff. So you said Shivers set in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. It's not really clear where. I mean, it's clear where it is, but, you know, in terms of, sort of a real world way, not clear where the Scorpio Races is. It's an island called Fisbee. It's like a fantasy It's like fantasy, Ireland. but it seems realistic. Yeah. But you don't really wonder, like, oh, this seems like a fake place. But it's, and the period is not really clear. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of kind of Britishy, British Isles feeling, and they don't seem to have much technology. They have cars though, so it feels kind of I don't know, maybe kind of mid-century, or they're just really behind on this little island. It's hard to tell. So they're on this island called Thisbe, and like a lot of island places, they have this sort of overall feeling of decline and people leaving for the mainland. But the big claim to fame for Thisbe are these races that take place in November, and so. There's horses. There's like regular horses and and all the things that go with that on the island. There's also these horses, these kind of mythical horses in the water. And they're Kapalishka. I think it's like pronounced with a ch- Kapaluchka. Kapaluchka. Something like that. Are these horses. They call them water horses. But then a lot they kind of talk about they're not quite horses. I mean, they refer to them as kind of reptilian at times. They're very, very dangerous. Um, and it opens with this this like prologue that and they're based off of like real mythological horse water horses yeah so basically it's a real horse culture on the island but there's also also these uh kapalishka mm-hmm. that are kind of seasonal they they get more and more dangerous in the as they approach this november time and they but even so they capture them and and try to train them and race them and they have this whole culture which is kind of 
mythical culture that's old kind of pagan culture around these horses and and the opening prologue this boy's father is killed in the races in a real blunt fashion that's a great opening line of scorpio races do you want to read it no you go ahead and say it because i know you know it i think it is it is the first day of november and so today someone will die yeah, so there's it's told from two perspectives. I started out listening to it because I'd had such a good experience listening to the Raven Boys, but the the audio of Scorpio Races did not do it the same way. It was like it's it's told from two perspectives, one male and one female, and so there's these two British voices. But they were not very performative, and I was just kind of like, eh, I'll just read it. But it goes back and forth between Sean Kendrick, who it's him whose father is killed in the sort of opening passage, and he proceeds to sort of grow up caring for horses for this guy who's sort of the big magnate on the island this big tycoon benjamin malvern who you know kind of owns most of the island kind of a thing and he's very very good with the horses he's won the race like four times and then kate Connolly, who they call puck and she's part of this big family whose parents were killed by the water horses but but not in races just when they were like out in their boat fishermen get killed by these they're like sea monsters and she's sort of struggling to hold her little family together early in the book she finds out that her older brother who's the primary breadwinner has decided to go to the mainland and he's sort of decided this and then kind of ices her out like you know he doesn't probably doesn't want her to convince him you know not to do it and so she decides to ride in the races on her land horse this little mare so that's that's sort of the general I like it a lot. It's once I got into it, I was, I mean, the, the prologue really surprised me. I didn't know it was going to get so violent so quick. And then, yeah, I just really like the characters and the place is very vivid. And this whole water horses conceit really works. And it seems like maybe there's a possible romance thing going on between these Sean Kendrick and Puck Connolly. Time will tell. I'm only halfway through, but I am enjoying it. And this was published earlier than the Raven Boys, but there's things in it where I'm kind of like, I mean, it's 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 the writing style is recognizable from the Raven Boys, and there are a few things where I, I wonder like, oh, that's a thing maybe she's going to develop more in subsequent books. Maggie's talked about how so she tried to write, started writing the Raven Boys when she was a teenager, and she couldn't do it. She couldn't like write what was in her mind, so she like put it away, and she wrote these other books to kind of like. I almost feel like learn how to write this series that she wanted to write. When she did the Scorpio races, she Ronan was Sean. She mm-hmm. stole that name for this book. And then when she came back to the Raven Boy, she had to find a new name for that character. But I could see that for sure. Well, and it's not a major thing in the book, but there's like this shop. It's called Fathom and Sons that's run by these sisters. And they sort of have a little bit of the, the sister vibe from the Raven Boys, the banter between these sisters that the sort of... Blue's mom and her aunts. Mm-hmm. It, it feels kind of like that. Like 300 Fox Way? Like 300 Fox Way. So that's the Scorpio races. So without further ado... I do have a lot of Scorpio races stuff, too. Anytime an Owl Crate does like a special edition of a book and the Scorpio races just had like an anniversary edition come out. This is it. Yeah. It's the 10th anniversary of it. All my Maggie books are signed. Many of them are personalized. (laughs) So that's the Scorpio races. Without further ado, let's get into the main course. 
here, the Raven Boys. All right, let's do it. So the Raven Boys opens up, and I guess to, to preface, I'll say that it's set in modern day. So in modern day at the time it was written was about 2012. It's low fantasy, and the fantastical elements of it are largely in the form of like psychics and ley lines and a sort of like natural magic that exists within this world. And it's set in the town of Henrietta, and the main character's name is Blue. And she finds out at the beginning of the book that when she kisses her true love, her true love will die. And she, along with her aunt, I believe, goes to what they call the death lines, like the ley lines, or they call it like the death road. And she ends up seeing this person that she's apparently going to kiss and might die. And it turns out that he has memories of his soul being in this ley line as well and so that's kind of like how the book begins and it's set up as sort of a mystery that and then it's very character driven and it involves blue sort of getting to know this group of boys who go to agley and b academy mm-hmm. and which is like a private school for like ivy league people you know it's the rich and well-to-do and so they all kind of have that, at least to her, they all have that, like, superiority. Very privileged. Very privileged lifestyle. Yeah. But she says a school for senator's sons and oil baron's sons and sons of women living off hush money. Right. <laughs> and so she kind of gets to know them and begins to learn their motivations. One of the main characters, Gansey, he is wanting to discover certain ley lines and make contact with this entity that will essentially grant you a wish or a boon if you manage to awaken him and so that's sort of the kind of the underlying plot is them trying to look for this figure mm-hmm. and see what happens and the figure is uh glendower who is like a real the welsh king character yeah welsh um legend i guess mm-hmm. kind of like an arthur figure oh okay yeah. Did you finish it? I did. I did finish oh, it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I probably wouldn't have finished it if it wasn't for the fact that we were doing it for the podcast, <laughs> but I did finish it. But it ends on a cliffhanger. It does. Yeah. It, does that intrigue you? Not really. <laughs> no. It was, and it, the ending is so abrupt, so we're kind of skipping all the way to the end. But so there's one, a- of the, one of the characters named Ronan, he at some point has this like baby raven that he finds chainsaw yeah that he names chainsaw and he keeps it with him and he like feeds it and takes care of it and it's sort of like he's like the rough guy with like a tough exterior who had a kind of a hard childhood because his father died and he was like the one who like witnessed the death and there's this his father was beaten to death yeah and he found him yeah and so there's like this mystery involving that Mm -hmm. but anyway he's sort of showing his like vulnerable side with this and the end of the book is basically him being like, oh, by the way, I pulled Chainsaw from my dreams. And then it ends. <laughs> that is exactly well, there, it. There was that yeah. whole other plot, too, though. There's the Leyline plot. And then kind of the plot around Noah, who, who right. turns out to be dead. And then, you, I, you know, it comes together. Like, you don't, at least I didn't realize it until you realize it, that mm-hmm. he's dead, but he's also the ghost of this boy who was murdered mm-hmm. by their teacher yeah and i boys. figured that out 
like 100 pages, maybe 150 <laughs> pages before it happened. Yeah. And, I think and that's... what made me realize yeah. it actually was that I was having this moment where I was like trying to think of how I was going to talk about each of these characters. Mm-hmm. And I realized that Noah had not really been present for a lot of the book. Mm-hmm. Like he had only shown up for like really small parts. And because of this book has so much to do with ghosts and spirit, things like that. Mm-hmm. I was like, is this guy a ghost? I was like, that would make so much sense. He's forgotten about, and then he only kind of pops up mm-hmm. in certain key moments. And then, yep, sure enough, that's what ends up happening. One of the things I love about these books is that, like, so much stuff is just laid out, right, in the beginning, and you don't necessarily realize it until, like, later. Like, when Noah's introduced, I think, early on, the, maybe the first thing he ever says, like, someone asks, like, why his hands are so cold or something, and he says, I've been dead for 10 years. And they're like, oh, Noah, you guy. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I would say there's four main characters of this book. And this is the series. And it's Blue, Gansey, Ronan, and Adam, who we haven't talked about. Noah is important. But, like, this book series is all written in, like, kind of close third person, right? Mm-hmm. And the chapters kind of will switch between which person is, like, close to, but it's always in third person. And it's never Noah. It's the other four. Is it never Noah? It's... Not even once? No, not once. Not once. Oh, okay. It's sometimes the teacher, though, right? Yes. Yes, it's sometimes okay. the teacher. And then, you know, it's sometimes the aunt. And then later there's other characters. Yeah. And Adam Parrish, one of the important things about him is that he's the ex- an exception to the he's rich poor. kid yeah. rule. He's like a, he's a scholarship. scholarship student. Yeah. And he's from Henrietta... And he works and has scholarships to afford to go to school there. He's very ambitious and he's also very angry. It comes up more, I think, in later books, kind of like the simmering anger he has. His father is abusive and his mom doesn't do anything about it. And this kind of like anger about being poor and and growing up in poverty and having this background that he can't help, but he's also very proud. And so he won't accept help. Yeah. He resents being like offered help in in some ways. I felt like that's a really important perspective. I think I recognize a lot of my like college self in Adam. I went to a private college with a lot of people who were very privileged and had no idea that they were. And I just feel like it's a perspective you don't read a lot in books. I think Adam is a really important character. But he's tough. He's a tough character. I remember, like I said, I'd read this series with my book club and one of my friends being like, I'm worried about Adam. I'm worried about what he's going to do. <laughs> That's how I felt throughout the book. Yeah. I, I felt like if there's going to be a person who they have to try to redeem or who's going to get like corrupted, it was going to be him. I think one of the great things about this series is that like none of those people, though, she ever lets be all good or all bad. Well, They're like com- complex and multidimensional. What's Ronan's brother's name? Neil. It's Declan, I thought. Declan. Oh, Neil's his dad. Neil Lynch is the dad. Declan. Declan. And, you know, Declan comes off like such a jerk. Mm -hmm. But when you read, like, the Call Down the Hawk, which is the first book of the three that are just about Ronan, really, they're about Ronan and Declan. And you learn there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more going on in Declan's life than you see in this series. Going back to Adam. Yeah, let's talk about Adam. Yeah, so I felt that it was an interesting perspective to see someone who was so disenfranchised and, like, who had grown up in such a difficult situation 
and yet he was also so proud. Mm-hmm. And I found that, yeah, I just found that to be an interesting perspective because sometimes I would think that someone would, in that situation, would be all about, like, survival, doing whatever they had to do to mm-hmm. get out of poverty. But he wasn't willing to compromise mm-hmm. on those principles. Like, he wasn't willing to take the easy way. He didn't want to take the handout from his mm-hmm. friend. He wanted to work for it and earn it himself. And part of it, I think, was his father has all this power over him and he didn't want to be indebted to someone else and sort of be under someone else's thumb. Mm-hmm. Yes, it comes up, I don't know if in the first one, but maybe, yes, about how he doesn't want to, like Gansey says, so you should come and live here with me in my right. apartment. Gansey has this kind of wish fulfillment type of uh, apartment that he's bought like this old warehouse and had an apartment made inside of it. And the rest of the warehouse is just still the warehouse. But yeah, Adam's no, like when he moves out, he's going to be on his own, on his own terms. Gansey is an interesting one, too, because mm-hmm. he, like you said, he has this like wish fulfillment thing. And he seems to have this idea that everything will work out the way that he wants it to. And he's so used to being charismatic mm-hmm. and intelligent enough to make that happen. So mm-hmm. he sort of takes control of the lives of his friends, more or less, to convince them to all move close to him. And to me, he, yeah, he just seems like someone who's very self-centered and focused on wanting to create his own, like, idealistic world around him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Gansey's background, you learn, like, I think, like, maybe halfway through the book about having, like, almost died because he's, like, deathly allergic to wasps and bees and hornets and stuff. And he had almost died 10 years before. It was, it was like when... Yeah, it was 10 years ago, Because it was when... Yeah. Uh, when Noah, Noah died. died and didn't, but I think still feels like. Like the urgency of yes. having died? Yeah. Like he's not going to live. Like he's not going to live much longer. And so he's just going to do these things that he enjoys doing. Yes, he has got this like obsession with his hunt for Glendower and the ley lines and all of this stuff. He has this like old professor friend in England who he talks to on the phone. Who's He, he comes later. He's. Very eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. A chatterbox. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the the hunt, the academic pursuit is kind of part of his personality at this point. Mm-hmm. And one thing I forgot to mention is that because Blue saw him along this corpse road, it means that he's going to die within the next year. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he, and he doesn't know that, at least maybe not fully. Like mm-hmm. he might have an inkling that it's going to happen, mm-hmm. sort of, which might explain why he's has this like, sense of time that you need he, has, he only has so much time left mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but she blue does not tell him this no she decides right not to he's very well resourced mm-hmm. and has that kind of like charming thing but it feels like a bit of a tension where he's kind of haunted mm-hmm. but is covering for it all the time with this kind of charm yeah. and you know cracking jokes and throwing money at things what about blue so Blue is kind of an emo teenager. <laughs> not really. She's not emo. She's kind of like... She's sort of like an artsy, yeah. eccentric... Yeah, she's artsy. Yeah. She has she's... like a really interesting relationship with her mother. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. Her mother isn't like a traditional mom. She doesn't... There's not like an air She's not like a regular mom. She's a cool mom. Yeah, she's cool mom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to be your friend. Ugh. And so she, like, doesn't get in trouble or anything. Like, there's a moment where 
her mom had basically told her to explicitly not do something and then Lou was surprised because she normally doesn't get told to do anything and then she of course rebels and does the thing anyway <laughs> and when her mom finds out she's like I've been talking with my friends and I feel like I deserve to be hurt and should I ground you kids still get grounded <laughs> And yeah, then, part of it's like Blue's never been bad before. Right. Yeah. And then Blue's like, well, I wouldn't listen to you anyway. I would just like climb out the window. <laughs> yeah, there's a real single mother kind of like they came up together mm-hmm. kind of a vibe. Like you ever, you know, like Gilmore Girls yeah. almost? Did you ever watch Gilmore Girls? I did not, no. Laura, you know what hate I'm it. about. No, I don't Lorelai and Rory, <laughs> like the mother and kid who are like kind of grown up together. And they live at 300 Foxway, this house full of women. So it's like Blue and her mom and her aunt, I read her name, and her cousin Orla. There's Persephone. And then her mom's best friends, Persephone and... Is Neve the name of the aunt? Yes, Neve is one of her aunts. Mm-hmm. She's the aunt that like comes into town to kick off the book. Yeah, I don't remember. There's Morris, the her mom, Persephone, and... What's the third one's name? I don't remember. I can hear like the voices from the audiobook <laughs> in my head. Calla. Calla. Is she the tough one? Yes, she's the tough one. And who's the real airy one? Persephone. Persephone. Persephone's the one with this most power. Yeah, I love all these characters. I feel like reading them, and probably like the thing I like the most about the book is I feel like the author knows them. And she's only, like, letting you know them a little bit at a time, you know? But I was talking to Austin about this yesterday, about Will Patton, who is the narrator for all of the audiobooks for this series, this series, and then the Call Down the Hawk ones as well. He's a very prolific reader. He also does, like, gobs of Stephen King books and James... He does James Lee Burke and mm-hmm. Stephen King, I think, are the big yeah. ones. But and then a lot lots of Lots of smatterings of other stuff. He's he, very prolific. He so also plays... People probably know him most recently as Jamie Dutton's biological father on Yellowstone. But he's been in movies, you know, forever. Mm-hmm. And he's a very... He's very performative reader. He does voices. He's very... Yeah, he's good at accents. He really performs the book. And when we were watching that Yellowstone... I was like, I know this person. Who is this? This voice. I know the voice. I was like, it's the reader from the books. I've listened to those so many times. But I think he does a lot to really like enhance the books. At this point now, if I'm even the Raven Boys, I can read it like in my head is his voice. And I think he can do things too where he draws out like a lot of the humor that you might miss if just reading it silently to yourself. He's just so good. Yeah, that's why when I did the audiobook of Scorpio Races, it just did. You're like, mm, it's eh. not the same. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, these books all take place in like rural Virginia. Which is where she actually lives. Yes, where Maggie lives. And so there's like a melange of different accents. Like Adam and Blue can have real kind of like country accents. And then Gansey and his family, real like moneyed Virginian accents. That's real distinct. And he can do it all. Yeah, I highly, highly recommend. Even if you don't want to read The Raven Boys of listening to something that he reads because he's so good. For sure my favorite narrator. So the second book, Jacob, is really, it's called The Dream Thieves. And it's really like Ronan's book. It really gets in his background and what his deal is. And 
It's really good. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoy it. <laughs> There's maybe also more plot in that one. So, Jacob, what's wrong with the Raven Boys? Oh, no. Where to start? Oh, my God. <laughs> so, for me, I didn't really care for the characters. To me, they weren't people that I could feel investing my time and life in. Like, sometimes when you have a group of characters, even if they're flawed and sometimes terrible people, I can identify with them and mm-hmm. find some common ground or, like, reason to care about them to continue exploring their stories. And with the Raven Boys, I just didn't have that with any of them. I didn't feel particularly interested in their lives or what was going on with them. The exception was perhaps Adam. And that's partly because I also grew up in poverty. And so I could understand some of, like, the issues that he deals with. But other than that, I didn't care for any of the other characters. Um, There was the final showdown at the end that I felt was extremely anticlimactic, where they had built up trying to find this ley line and there needs to be like this sacrifice in order to activate it and so adam makes a sacrifice of just sacrificing himself but he doesn't actually pay a cost to do that he just sort of says he's sacrificing himself and then is immune to getting shot and so i felt like if there was an actual like a legitimate sacrifice where he suffered for making that choice it would have been better but he doesn't. And instead, the villain, who is completely incompetent and terrible and so poses no legitimate threat to anybody. Who are you considering the villain? So in this case, Welk. Okay. Yeah. So Welk, he's the teacher. He murdered his best friend, or at least he considered him like a lackey. <laughs> and that's Noah. And he killed him like 10 years ago in an attempt to activate the ley line. And for some reason it failed. It doesn't really, I don't think I understood why it didn't work. The reason behind that is like, well, they say you have to actually give something up. Like it's not a sacrifice for him to kill Noah because he doesn't care about him? Yeah. So with the second time where he tries to murder Neve, mm-hmm. Neve says that you're not sacrificing anything because you don't care about me mm-hmm. and you already murdered someone. So you don't, you obviously don't care about murdering people, mm-hmm. but I assume that Noah was the first person that he murdered. Yeah. So unless he sort of had this philosophy of, I'm going to kill him and I don't care about that, then maybe that's why it didn't work. It's not really explained. Yeah. The sacrifice that Adam makes is that he's somebody who needs to and wants to kind of like escape this town and leave and go to something else. And his sacrifice is that he ties his life, basically, to this line, making it so that he has to stay there and take care of it, and he can't leave. And that's the thing that he gives up. Is that explained in one of the further books of, like, the consequences of what he does? Yeah, Persephone ends up being kind of like a mentor to him. And, the, yeah, it's it's built out more. Okay. Yeah. And then, so, Welk. Who, again, who's he's the villain. Yeah, he gets pretty cartoonish. Yeah, it's there's a point where Gansey goes home, and he's on his way back, and trying to get back, and his car breaks down, and Welk just kind of happens to, to find Gansey broken down. Mm-hmm. And it sort of describes how Welk was probably tailing him, just kind of keeping an eye on him, making sure that he wasn't, like, going to find this ley line. And when he sees Gansey broken down, he decides to act on it and he tries to essentially rob him at gunpoint and then murder him mm-hmm. and Ganzi manages to get close enough while he's carrying the gun to like punch the gun out of his hand 
and then they like scramble on the ground for this gun and it goes under Gansey's car and his reaction to that is like to get in his car and just leave because mm. there's a, there's another car coming mm-hmm. so he's like have to make a decision on what to do and I'm like man you were like terrible like you didn't think any of this through you could have just shot him <laughs> and took the journal and left mm-hmm. and then he shows up and he does manage to escape Neve, who like tasers him and kidnaps him and is she's gonna sacrifice him to activate the ley line and when they get there he manages to escape again goes through the conversation of he's gonna sacrifice neve but it's not gonna work and then he gets trampled to death by these <laughs> uh like cows or whatever these like ox that appear out of nowhere and they just trample him and kill him and then the problem's over and it's yeah, like because adam wakes up the line and that's all the stuff comes. I don't in. remember the cows. Where do the cows? They're not come cows. In? They're like, they're like elk. They're like are they oh, water horses? <laughs> Fine. These like spirit elk run through and then trample him and nobody else, even though they're all grouped up together. Mm-hmm. And then he's like lying broken on the ground. And then they have some discussion about like, did he get what he deserved, or does no one deserve to die? I think they went into the dream tree. What? When the stuff was happening. Oh, the dream tree. They popped into yeah. the dream tree and had visions. Right. Because there's that whole cave's water, mm-hmm. right? That's the place. Cave's water. water. Yeah. And there's some like shimmery interdimensional seeming things happening there. There's a whole thing with Ronan. Like Ronan had been there before and the trees are speaking Latin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I remember now. I forgot about the animals trampling the teacher guy. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. In the second book, too, there's like a new character that is introduced who's a much better villain. Oh, that assassin guy? Yeah. Yeah, he's interesting. Yeah. Well. I'm sorry you didn't like my favorite book. (laughs) I'm sorry, too. This is the beautiful thing, though, is that we can discuss and nobody gets hurt, right? Right? Not physically. Not physically. Just, just emotionally. It's like every book club. He's like, I hate this book. And everybody else is like, this is the best book I've ever read. I do think it's funny how two people can read the same book and have completely different reactions mm-hmm. to it and like connections to it. Some people begin to like identify with the book. You know, like it becomes like a personal aspect of them. They're very protective of it. Like it's part mm-hmm. of their identity. Well, I don't have like a tattoo or anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, yeah. I think especially a series like that where the cast, you know, where it's kind of like I remember there being a thing on This American Life one time where they're talking about some study that they had done about, like, people watching TV shows Mm. where their interaction, like, watching the characters would light up the same parts of your brain that light up with, like, friends when you see a friend. And I feel like a, a series of books where you follow characters a long time and really identify with them do become real like that for people. Yeah, and that's kind of showing with one of the recent trends in, like, media mm-hmm. of streamers will literally stream shows that they watch with uh-huh. their audience mm. for the first time. So uh-huh. you're not actually in the room with the streamer, and odds are you're not interacting with them, uh-huh. but you still sort of have that, like, it's little like a parasocial. parasocial relationship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, par- yeah, yeah. I will say at the, around the time that Maggie was here – for her author visit, there was a Raven Voice television show in pre in development, and it got shopped around for a while, and then it 
it was like maybe sci-fi was going to do it and then maybe like freeform was going to do it and i think they got some things cast and it was in pre-production and then i think it dropped and to be honest i'm glad it did maybe for the best yeah i think in my mind these characters are like peers of mine and mm-hmm. if i were to watch them on tv be like children maybe I would weird like, you out <laughs> Although, although I think, you know, if you were going to adapt something like this, Mm -hmm. at least it it would, if it were to happen now, Mm -hmm. at least it would be coming in this era of more expansive, like, television adaptations of stuff. Yeah. Rather than, like, trying to cram it into a feature film. Sure. Um, Yeah. Like, you know, I think of, like. City of Bones. Philip Pullman's work being done as like a well being done both sure. ways as a feature film and then I guess if being HBO did it I would have oh I, then it would be fun yeah like HBO that's like up here I'm gesturing towards the sky versus like were you worried that like ABC was gonna do it freeform that's like ABC family oh, ABC family yeah they haven't been called ABC family low these many years I I'm not in the loop but it'd be like WB doing it <laughs> I could see the Scorpio races being adapted but you know CGI horses and stuff. <laughs> what are you? I gonna... thought I was going to say something, but then I didn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I can kind of feel that with certain adaptations, where I don't think that either because of the setting or maybe some of the like material that happens or like the content of the book, that an adaptation would ever be able to do it justice. Yeah. How much? Oh CG, yeah. How much CGI budget could you possibly have? Oh sure. Are yeah. you going to have time to develop these characters in these situations over the course of many seasons? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you you don't know in television, right. you know. And is the CGI even possible? Yeah. And I will say that I'm glad that animation is continuing to evolve, and like people's ideas of animation is beginning to evolve, where it's seen less as something that's intended for children, uh-huh. because I think that there's a lot of possibilities in making adaptations. Um, oh, using anim- animation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely feel like a, the, the series mode that the TV can offer is more like a novel than mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of feature film. Yeah. Percy Jackson is one that got a movie adaptation, and now it's getting a Disney, TV adaptation. On Harry, Netflix, po- Harry Potter apparently is going to get a, a TV adaptation, which is interesting, and, and yeah. I don't know. Put a lot of money in uh, Mrs. Rowling, Row- Rowling. Rowling's pocket. For sure. I can say, though. But part of me thinks like that it's more I, expansive. They could do it more justice that they way. They could do it better. I I didn't think any of the Harry Potter movies were very well done, personally. Like the, this, the set design and stuff was very cool. And, you know, like Daniel Radcliffe and stuff. But some really good actors though yeah for sure like the best of british acting (laughs) but they left so much out i feel like in the later movies what they left out of the earlier movies means that you don't i think it doesn't hit the emotional beats that it does reading the books because you don't have this but it's risky like jacob said too because you can embark on this Mm -hmm. grand project of doing all the harry potter and then the money men say sorry like we're going to have to just stop, you know, and then you end up with Firefly. Yeah, I mean, audiences are notoriously fickle and impatient. So when you have situations where you want a 10-season show, like you have the content for that, 
that's at least 10 years of someone's life. Mm -hmm. And people lose interest. They move on. And then it might be so popular, just a rich moneymaker. You might have all the actors on board. And then the showrunners are like, eh, I'm done. Game of Thrones? Yeah. (laughs) They're like, I'm going to do something else now. Oh. Or it could be like Grey's Anatomy. It could be like, (laughs) all right, it's season 30 of Harry Potter. (laughs) You know? Harry Potter's 45. <laughs> Stuck in a dead-end oh. job at the Ministry of Magic. Oh, man. I could see that happening. Yeah. Like, like with CGI and de-aging actors, it's fine. No, I just think they signed contracts just this week saying that they wouldn't do that. No. Now, who's playing Who's playing Harry Potter? They're de-aging Daniel. No, I don't know. De-aging Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> I, Dumbledore, uh, Steve Buscemi, I heard, but I, I don't know that for sure. You just made that I up. I just made that up. But wouldn't it be great? Huh. James Woods. <laughs> These are all terrible choices. Oh. I think I should be Dumbledore. Gary Busey? You know Gary Busey? <laughs> That'd be something else. Oh. Hmm. I guess we're kind of devolving here now, but. Anyways, I guess <laughs> I, I'm glad that there's no Raven Boys television show for me to hate. Yeah. Because that's probably what would happen. Yeah. I think of other books I really loved, like The Spectacular Now. Yeah. That they made into a film that was just like, did you guys even read the same book as me? Right. Like, all of the characters are there, but they're doing totally different stuff. Can you think of a book, can either of you think of a book you loved that was successfully adapted? Game of Thrones, yeah. Game of Thrones. A Song of Ice and Fire. Until, you know, season seven and eight, I didn't care for. But I felt they did a pretty good job of, Especially the first two Yeah, the first two, three seasons. The material was condensed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had to leave out a lot of things, and that was unfortunate. But I felt like they did a really good job of, like, creating the set and the characters and establishing everything and making you feel pulled in immediately Mm -hmm. and invested in this world and wanting to know what happens with all of these characters. And it was another example of sort of where... You never knew what was going to happen. You know, there were deaths all the time. Like, even characters you thought were central to the plot were killed, getting their heads chopped off. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Becky? Oh, I know there are some. Like, I think Fried Fried Green Tomatoes is a really good movie Mm. adaptation. Man, I know that there's other ones, and I can't think of them right now. I like, so far, I haven't seen all of it. I like His Dark Materials Mm -hmm. on HBO. I I really loved that trilogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even though I remember my high school librarian, I was getting it, and she was like, aren't you Catholic? Because at that time, the Catholic Church was like, don't read these books. Don't go to these movies. I remember sitting in a mass one time where actually the sermon dealt with not going to see the Golden Compass when it was in theaters. And you know what we did after mass? You went and saw the Golden we Compass. We went and saw the Golden Compass, yeah. So, <laughs> anyway. Just ask for forgiveness after. That's right. <laughs> Well, you know, you got to keep the confession going. Confession oh, my gosh, you guys. We did religion and politics, everything in this episode. Yeah. Ooh. So, Austin, you never really said, what did you think of the Raven Boys? What did you like? What did you dislike, well, if anything? Well, I'm trying to stay neutral here. Uh, no, you're not. I'm, I'm trying to be a uh, moderator and keep you guys from tearing each other apart. But It's been a lot more civil than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, I... yeah, Jacob really pulled back from what he was saying this morning. <laughs> Uh-oh, hot takes. Because uh, I was like, you're being so mean. Oh, you can do pretty incredibly 
blunt. I also hate what happens books. to be Jacob's favorite book. Oh, no. Here we go. But his book is just deeply offensive, and that's why. Oh, no. <laughs> Admittedly, the first book is very sexist, and I think that, like... Oh, what book are we talking about? Red Rising Red by Rising. Brown. So, like, the first book, there's a <laughs> lot of issues with that in particular, of, like, sexism, and, like, it's fairly misogynistic. Yeah. Like, yeah. And... It's real bad. However, I can say, having read every other book, that, like, the first book is the only book that's like that. Like, that isn't an issue that continues mm. throughout the series. So if you can make it through the first book. He read some reviews and was like, ooh. He grew. And I reread it. No, not. Oh, no, no. Pierce Brown. Oh, oh Pierce Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Anyways. Yeah. So. Which, coincidentally, is another uh, series that sort of had a television mm-hmm. adaptation or movie mm. adaptation in the works. And I was like, you're not going to be able to do this. Like, there's characters that are eight feet tall, uh-huh. and that's, like, the norm. And how are you going to cast all these, like, ridiculously <laughs> tall people who are also happen to be teenagers? You know, they're all, like, seven-foot-tall 16-year-olds. Oh right, and they all get, like, surgeries and stuff, like, to make them. Like, Just the, the main character. Oh, okay. I was, like, the biggest, strongest, most good-looking people you've ever imagined in your life. Yeah. So... I feel like you could do that with animation, certainly. Yeah. Not something you'd ever be able to do with legitimate, you know, actors. You could call it live action, but have it be animation, like The Lion King. Oh, right. Sure. (laughs) They'll just wear a green suit, and then they'll just add masks. It's just your eyes, but then the rest is all different. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, that's, that's what it should be. I I liked it. I liked the characters a lot. And the sort of tension in the relationships, uh, you know, the relationship between Gansey and Adam, you know, and the ways that they are both kind of troubled, you know, and, and so much of it comes out of their background, but troubled in different ways and kind of they care a lot for each other, but they're speaking past each other. You know, there's the conf- I think that's in this book, confrontation about his Adam's parents and wanting to wanting him to come live with him and they can't. They just so much emotion. They can't speak to each other on it. And I think Gansey's really hurt by it because I think he's sincere, you know, in wanting to help Adam. And Adam can't, he can't hear Adam and Adam can't really hear him. And I really like, one of the things I really enjoyed about it was the 300 Fox Way was the banter among the women. And this is something too that it's hard for me to separate the performance of it in the audiobook from what it would be like if I just picked it up cold and read it. But because he really acts the voices of the different women. But I thought the sort of snappy banter between the different women and the kind of absurdity of this house that this kid grows up in with all these psychics. And it's and psychic ability is just sort of like a workaday reality. I liked that a lot. There's like the part where Persephone tells Blue if she's going to punch somebody not to tuck her thumb in. Mm-hmm. And then that happens. And then, the yeah, Gansey breaks his thumb punching a... And she's like, I told you. She's like, well, you didn't tell me you was going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The way that's just such a, I like how Blue moves the, through the world and all these like extraordinary things are totally normal to her. And she's mm-hmm. just sort of a teenager having the feelings about things that teenagers have. Mm-hmm. But the things happen to be really weird. Yeah. But at the same time, she feels like left out of everything because she doesn't have these like psychic talent or whatever she she has like an ability to like enhance right that's an interesting choice that i thought was to have her not have the abilities but be like a what like an amplifier amplifier yeah 
But then when she starts adventuring with, like, Gansey and company, feeling like something's finally happening to her that's magic. Right. And she's useful to this group. Yeah. Her, her ability is useful. And her Especially to Noah, who yeah. can, like, use her energy to, like, boost strength. his signal. Be yeah. around, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I thought it's. I, I thought one of the things that makes it really cool is the the sort of ensemble of these mm-hmm. very different characters. I will say that one thing I did like um, <gasps> is that I felt like the dialogue was written very well. Mm-hmm. Like I could tell who was talking just by the dialogue, which it's pretty rare. I That's a hard like thing to do, I think. It, yeah, it's a really especially with the amount of characters that she has. Mm-hmm. So I will say that like that was very very well done. And going along with that is, like, none of the dialogue felt, to me, like it was, like, cliche teenager speak. It felt like they were real people. Like, sometimes when authors write teenage characters, it's all very kind of cookie-cutter dialogue. Mm. You know, you know what they're going to say. It's either going to be very dramatic or it's going to be very emo Mm -hmm. or both, you know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The ending, I think I did get a little confused when we were initially listening to it mm-hmm. it's also hard to separate when you're listening to an audiobook and you like get tired driving and different things like that the world impinges on your your uptake of the thing but i did there's aspects of the plot i really liked i liked the way noah ended up being a ghost i liked you know ronan thing with chainsaw and the sort of mystery about his father and like what's the deal with mm-hmm. his father and when they go to his no is that in the next book it all runs into my head it's in the next book oh never mind then in the next book, they go to the Barnes is the... They go to his, his home, basically. Is the, yeah. So the Barnes is the name of the farm in Ronan's family. And he, since his dad died, he and, and Declan, and they have a little brother called Matthew, they're not supposed to go there. Right. And the reason is interesting, I think. I was very taken in by the intrigue, mm-hmm. particularly around Ronan, you know, and sort of what's not being said about this mm-hmm. murder of his father and what's going on there and the interactions with Declan. You're like, what's fueling all this? Yeah, I liked it. There was a point in the book that I did have a pretty big eye roll on. Oh, no. uh, (laughs) So when they were, there's a part where several of the characters show up to 300 Fox Way to have a tarot reading Mm -hmm. done. Right. And that, I was like, I like the setup of that because I feel like you can do a lot of clever foreshadowing as an author. Mm -hmm. Like it's a chance to kind of showcase your skills in that way. And they had established before that blue kind of represents this page of cups card. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, it's obviously that Gansey is going to get this card. And I was like, what's going to happen after that? And I was like, well, someone has to draw the classic death tarot card because, mm-hmm. of course, even though it's like completely incorrect with how tarot is, but you know, it's how media is presented. And of course, draws the the page because uh-huh. it connects with blue and then they talk about drawing a card from another deck and he draws it again and then they're like okay let's take that card out of the deck and i was like what's he gonna draw he's gonna draw death he draws death and i was like okay yeah all right yeah i will say though she does know what the cards mean you know maggie's written a book about tarot and drawn a tarot deck did she read your cards on the deck yeah she made that you owned yeah just throwing you another Do you remember little... the reading? No. Oh, what? You didn't take notes? No. Which is a joke in the book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I, you didn't? I might have, you know, I might have some notes somewhere, but. You should definitely go through your diary and right. find that. Wow. So overall, it's not the worst book I've ever read. I don't think I would read any 
further books in the series. Mm-hmm. It wasn't. It just wasn't my cup of tea. I don't think I would have finished it had it not been for the podcast. Driven by obligation. But, but having read through it, it was okay. Mm-hmm. I couldn't give it a glowing review or say I enjoyed it, but it, it was it was fine. I'll tell you this story. Uh-oh. One time, I was in my car and I was listening to the Raven Boys audiobook, which I've listened to a number of times. And it was spring, and they're talking about how it's St. Mark's Eve. And I looked at my phone or whatever, for then that was the day. That was the day it was. I happened to start listening to it just by coincidence. And then that also, I had a scarf on in my car, and then a bee came on my scarf, like a little bee. Wow. And I was like, coincidence? coincidence? Wow. <laughs> Another joke in the book. Yes. They don't actually believe in coincidences, so they just say coincidence. Yeah. Yeah. So coincidence that neither Becky nor I liked each other's favorite book. <laughs> I feel like, you know, there's like there's a model for readers yeah. advisory of like four doorways that people like about books. And the the doorways are character, prose, setting, w- setting world building and plot. And I feel like I am a prose and character reader and Jacob is a plot and setting reader. And I think that kind of explains why our favorite books clash. Yeah, but like I read Celeste Ng's, is Mm. that how you pronounce her name? Uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Yeah, I think it's like Ng. Ng, okay. But I read Little Fires Everywhere Mm -hmm. and I loved that book. When I I finished reading that book, I strongly considered just going back to the beginning and reading it again. I loved it that much. And that was... And that book is very prose and very character. character. Yeah. And I loved it. it. It was one of the best books I've ever read. Just goes to show you can't reduce people to their doorways. <laughs> you know? Like some of us different. just, we, you know, we experiment with different doorways. And we go a little in one and a little in another. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was going to say, like, doorway curious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Look, I'm, like, quad doorway. <laughs> Oh, boy. Austin, what are your doorways? Well, probably prose. And probably his main doorway. But I think yeah. prose is, is a big doorway for mm-hmm. me. It's a big doorway for me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and with that. We made it through the discussion. We did it. Um, next month. Who are, who's on next month? All of, are we all on? I'll be on next month. We're all mm-hmm. on? It's... I'm very excited. It's Shirley Jackson, I, and I don't know if listeners are familiar. She's had quite a revival in recent years. Probably mm-hmm. everybody read the lottery in, in middle school, uh, middle school or high school. So. I didn't. <gasps> what? What? Oh, this is gonna be fun. This is gonna be fun. So I, should I start with that one? Start with yeah, the lottery. It's a short story mm-hmm. or a novella. It's a short story. Short story. In a collection of short stories, also called the lottery. Yeah. And maybe you'll read it and be like, oh, I did read this in middle school. I doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's the it's the story that got the New Yorker the most hate mail it ever received. Really? Yeah. So we'll have a lot to talk about for Spooky yeah. October. What about, is it House on Haunted Hill or? The Haunting of Hill House. Haunting of Hill House. And that was... <gasps> Could we watch a movie, one of the Hill House movies? Or the yeah. Show? Yeah. Was the Haunting of Hill House adapted? That was adapted, right? It's yeah. been adapted a lot. Into a Netflix series. There's a Netflix yes. series. And that is one of my favorite 
at, like I haven't read the book, so I can't say that. Mm-hmm. But like that series was phenomenal. Like it's, yeah, that's the it's Shirley Jackson. So good. It's the same yeah. guy who did that one priest show we watched. Oh, Dark Matter. No, no, that's a Blake Crouch. Midnight Mass. Midnight Mass. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I, I have a friend who can't stand horror. He doesn't want to touch mm-hmm. it. Uh-huh. Wouldn't touch it with a ten foot pole. It's his least favorite genre. He'll never do it again. And okay. yeah, he, he saw me. We, he was in the same room as I was watching the show, and he was drawn into it. And he watched the whole thing with me. Basically, binged it with me. Wow. And he cried. And wow. it was so good. They also made a film adaptation of that same story in, like, when I was in middle school. So, like, the late 90s with, like, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And I remember finding that very scary. Sounds like we could have a party with some candy corn or something and and watch some. Candy corn? You know, because October. Caramel corn. Agreed. Okay. Candy corn is just, like, sugar that hurts your teeth. I like the pumpkins myself. But I digress. <laughs> I hope everybody's doing the challenge on Beanstack. Mm-hmm. It's not too late. I mean, it's kind of late, but it's not too late to jump in and maybe earn yourself a chance to get a Reader's Delight box, but mostly to earn yourself many wonderful literary experiences. Mm-hmm. And I hope you have a parasocial relationship with us. I, I Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Or just come visit us at the library. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or just an actual social relationship. Yeah. With that, this has been... Your shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky. I'm Jacob. I'm Austin. Bye. See ya. So long. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the Friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.